Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. If you think about never Trump Republicans, your mind almost inevitably goes to the Lincoln Project. And if you think about the Lincoln Project today, the two guys who pop straight into your head are the two guys who are with us on Hell and High Water today. Guest number one is Lincoln Project co-founder and board member Rick Wilson, longtime Republican, now turned independent political operative, media consultant, self-described infamous negative ad maker, and the author of the 2018 New York Times number one bestseller, Everything Trump Touches Dies, fantastic title, and its 2020 bestselling sequel, Running Against the Devil, again, a little reference, very sly to Donald Trump. Guest number two is Lincoln Project senior advisor Stuart Stevens, whose storied career as a Republican strategist across four decades included electing conservative governors and senators in more than half the country, as well as working on five, count them, five presidential campaigns, including his stint as guru numero uno for Willard Mitt Romney in 2012, until Stuart Stevens, too, like Rick Wilson, renounced his party, in Stuart's case, in crystal clear and day-glow vivid fashion in his own 2020 bestseller, It Was All a Lie. That's the title. It was all a lie. And yes, that title refers not just to the GOP's ostensible convictions and principles and ideology, but Stewart's own life's work. Rick Wilson and Stuart Stevens have more in common than apostate status and resumes littered with accomplishments of which they are now more than a little ashamed. Both are razor sharp, laugh out loud funny, and wildly inventive and incisive in their denunciations of Donald J. Trump and the cult of personality that the party they once loved and worked tirelessly on behalf of has become. For example, take a listen to Rick here offering his theory as to why, on some level, Trump was in fact delighted by the FBI showing up on the doorstep of Mar-a-Lago last month. Donald Trump's business model now is no longer real estate. It's an email list milking the shit out of his donors. It is his politics is a better revenue source, a more profitable. It doesn't cost him that much to run that situation versus actually having to do real estate and get loans and build things. Donald Trump likes the easy money of politics. He also is the worst narcissist on the planet Earth in the history of mankind. He desperately misses being back in the game, in the spotlight, in the center of every conversation. So in a lot of ways, even though the FBI was kicking the door down at Mar-a-Lago, I promise you there was a part of Donald Trump that was like, yes, this is good for me. Convincing on Rick's part, but no more convincing than Stewart following that up in terms of the fallout from Trump's hold on the party, here talking about how it is that a seemingly conventional finance bro Republican, like Virginia's new governor, Glenn Youngkin, could wind up endorsing and campaigning on behalf of the bona fide batshit election-denying Republican nominee for governor of Arizona, Kerry Lake. So everybody said, you know, I had all these Republican friends saying, look, Glenn Youngkin, you know, he's kind of like Mitt Romney, came out of financiers. He's a good guy. He's not going to be one of these crazies. He's also ambitious. To advance in the Republican Party, you have to now endorse and campaign for Terry Lake. Why did the Republican Party say, and we thought they believed, character counts? Because ultimately, this is all about the character of the party. Once you make this deal, and what people forget is that, you know, what 
in Faust, Mephistopheles not only takes your soul, but he doesn't deliver. So once you accept Trump and you make these deals, how does that end? Tactically, you know, say, okay, we're going to win Virginia, but then, you know, you end up with a Herschel Walker, you end up with these crazy people. Crazy people indeed. Stuart and Rick have a lot to say about them, all these crazy people who are running in a lot of the key races around the country in these midterm elections, now just six weeks ahead of us, elections that both of these men believe, and I think rightly, will have a huge effect on whether American democracy survives or not. There are also elections in which the Lincoln Project isn't just throwing every fastball it can muster to help team democracy win, but also to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the group itself is, in every way, on the side of the angels. When the Lincolneers first banded together for the 2020 presidential election cycle, of course, they were greeted with hearty hosannas from lifelong liberals, diehard Democrats, and the mainstream media, only to see the tide turn dramatically against them the very next year when the group found itself mired in scandal, when one of its co-founders stood credibly accused of sexual misconduct, including sending text messages to young men and suggesting the possibility of trading employment opportunities for sex. Also, the group mired in organizational disarray and dysfunction and pounded and hounded by accusations of almost kind of quasi-Trump style grifting and profiteering. Some of that dark and ugly time in LP's history will no doubt be covered in the forthcoming five-part documentary series entitled simply The Lincoln Project that debuts on Showtime on October 7th. But I took this opportunity to ask Wilson and Stevens about those controversies myself on this podcast, and you will definitely want to hear their answers and everything else that these two guys have to say about this moment in American politics, about these midterms that lie before us, and about their take on a country teetering on the brink of a full-blown age of hell on high water. I am announcing that today we are filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump for violating the law as part of his efforts to generate profits for himself, his family, and his company. The complaint demonstrates that Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself and to cheat the system thereby cheating all of us. We show that they violated several state criminal laws, including falsifying business records, issuing false financial statements, insurance fraud, and engaging in a conspiracy to commit each of these state law violations. We believe the conduct alleged in this action also violates federal criminal law, including issuing false statements to financial institutions and bank fraud. So that was a minute and six seconds of uh, longer than I normally like to play sound, but a minute and six seconds of Letitia James, the attorney general of the state of New York, uh, where I live, um, bringing what I believe is, I believe Hunter Thompson would have called the thousand pound shit hammer down on, on the head of Donald Trump. And we're here with two people who I'm sure we're <laughs> celebrating at that moment, two of my favorite Republicans and two of every, two of every good liberals, uh, favorite Republicans, uh, Rick Wilson and Stuart Stevens from the Lincoln Project had so many campaigns, so many cable TV appearances. Um, it's good to see you guys both here together. You too, John. Thanks for asking us to the party. There's a lot to say about what happened in the last week um, about your favorite or your least favorite Republican, Donald Trump, the object of so much of your venom and humor uh, at the Lincoln Project and, and, and the guy who in some ways is 
you know, the, at least the the proximate cause of the total unraveling of the party that you both once right. belonged to. But I, just to check, Stuart, you're no, are you now, do you still call yourself a Republican? What do you, how do you describe yourself? No, I wouldn't call myself a Republican. Right. You wrote that it was all a lie book. It's hard to stay, call yourself a Republican after a book with a title like that. Rick, are you still ostensibly no, a member? I, I'm, I'm a, I'm an independent now. I'm a, no, a okay. non-party affiliated uh, in the state of Florida. You can be an NPA and I waited until August of, of 2020 because I wanted to vote against the son of a bitch two times that year. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, the, the, the loneliest position in the world is, is being a uh, an individual liberty pro-constitution conservative who doesn't have a party anymore. Yes. OK, fair enough. All right. So that's good. We have that established. Um, and you guys both hate Trump. That's clear. There's a lot of news from this last week about Trump's you know, various things that advance, like actual substantive, not just incremental advances on on some of the stories about the illegal uh, challenges he's facing and uh, predicaments he's facing on multiple fronts. Letitia James was the one that, you know, I mean, to, to see that woman stand up and uncork that statement uh, where she basically said, you know, the bill has come due, Mr. Trump. The state of New York is now going to come after you with a lot of uh, firepower and in fact, uh, I'd like to point out that he also have violated criminal laws in this state and at the federal level, and we have amassed millions of documents that prove it. So I guess, Rick, I ask you, for a lot of people who like spent four years thinking Mueller's going to get him, one of these impeachments is going to get him, and they didn't. People were like, at this point, are like, maybe he's just, it's impossible. He's going to get off scot-free. Accountability will never come for Donald Trump. Did you think this week was the week where you're like, you know, the day may finally be coming? when the bill really does come due for Trump? You know, I, I have been, uh, like like so many people, I have hoped for accountability would, w- that would come to Trump. And I used to hope it was going to be from Trump's like moral outrages, you know, shitting on John McCain or or mocking the disabled or putting people in cage. You know, I used to hope it was going to be for one of the, the one of those reasons. But if it comes in the form of Donald Trump being a tax cheat scumbag, I'll take it. When I worked for Giuliani back in the late 90s, early 2000s in the city, and both in the campaigns and in City Hall, it used to always sort of amuse me because they treated Trump as a clown. They knew who the real top tier real estate developers were. And and a deputy mayor one time said to me, he's a guy you throw a couple of parking passes to. He's not a guy that you really take care of. Even so, in 2015, when he started to really get some traction, I went to one of my hedge fund bros who was, you know, had, had done some, some super PAC stuff for us in the past. And I sat down with him and I said, listen, I'm worried about this guy. He's at least a billionaire. He could fund, you know, this campaign. And he looks at me and he goes, the fuck are you talking about? Trump's not a billionaire. He goes, I'm a billionaire. Trump is a clown living on credit. And I wrote about that in my first book. Cause I was like, it, it was it, like the illusion of Trump was so strong for so long that he was rich. Then it, it, even with the, the evidence of it, people still had problems like parsing it in their brains. And there's also maybe this illusion that he's invulnerable. And I think Tish James has got the receipts. And she, that was clearly a press conference where, where there will not be a lot of, you, you can't troll or tweet or truth your way out of a lot of the very sharp accusations that she presented uh, in, that, in that press conference. I mean, Stuart, is the day really finally coming? Like we're, I mean, look, I, I look, a lot of people helped for a, a different kind of a different kind of accountability, as Rick just said, but you know, I mean, they, they had to get Capone on tax evasion. You know, it's not like it's not. There's, you know, well, you get him, you get him, right? Well, here's the deal. I think this sounds like a joke, but it's not. I think um, that if he was indicted, it would help him in the primary uh, for right. president. So, we'll get to that. if you play this out, 
Um, it seems to me the case that is likely to move the quickest is the one in Georgia because it's the least complicated. They've advanced this now. So if he was indicted in Georgia, I think that would help the guy. So would Republicans vote for a guy under indictment? Of course they would if it was Donald Trump. So, you know, I still think Trump will be the Republican nominee. Um, You know, the thing that I just go back to, I'm not aware of any Republican on the ballot in Congress or Senate who has said that they would not vote for Trump if he were the nominee in 24. I think Asa Hutchinson said it, but he's not on the ballot. Mitt's not on the ballot. Liz isn't on the ballot anymore. So, yeah, I think it'll have to be a conviction. And I think you have to play it out about... What is it like? How hard is it to actually convict someone who could be a front runner for the Republican nomination? Um, if he was convicted in Georgia, I think he'd be on appeal. So I don't know. You got to really kind of the heart of the matter, you know, further down the line, which is, you know, what all this might do to his political prospects. And, and Rick, you know, I, I think I, you may have been the first person I asked because I happened to be hosting Nicole's show mm. when the Mar-a-Lago thing started. Rick was on one of the earliest days. I started asking Republicans. Stuart, to your point, I started asking every Republican strategist or former Republican strategist who was on the show, I'd say, you know, could he could he run under indictment? Could he win under indictment? Uh, and every single person said yes. And I was I, I sort of that was my gut on it. But I was happy to be have everybody agree that that it wouldn't hurt him, but would help him. And, you know, we saw in that moment the extraordinary parade of Republicans, not just falling in line behind Trump when when the shit really started to come down, not from Tish James, but from the FBI and, and the DOJ. You know, the incredible attacks on law enforcement. And Rick, I ask you, you know, I'll ask Stuart this in a second to give him a chance to think about it. Like I, the thing after a few days, the thing that I couldn't believe was that even people like Mitt Romney, no one even stood up. Forget about attacking Trump. I mean, it's just like, where was Mitt Romney standing up saying, guys, it's not right for the party to attack federal law enforcement. This is going to end badly. It's going to end with blood. There's a guy who just showed up at the FBI field office in Cincinnati with a nail gun. Please stop doing this. That would have been politically cost-free, right? I mean, you're not attacking Trump. You, I mean, I, not maybe not cost-free, but how would Mitt Romney have suffered from that? How would you know some of some of those people who have carved out a little bit of space from Trump? I was shocked that no one stood up for federal law enforcement in the Republican Party. Remember, this is a party deeply influenced by Trump's and by extension Bannon's whole deep state fantasy that there's a huge apparatus, it's polluted the entire federal government, and it's all turned itself against conservatives, against Donald Trump, against Republicans, or whatever, however you want to fill in that that blank. Look, I can't speak for Mitt Romney personally, but a lot of the Republicans that I knew very closely who, who are out of Congress now and out of the Senate now, they were physically afraid of Donald Trump's followers. They were always terrified of putting a foot wrong. And it could be something that pissed Trump off in some way they couldn't have even anticipated. The lack of a defense of federal law enforcement, it, it shows just how poisonous the Republican base is in the right. thinking of even people who are smart enough and who have some you know, shred of principles enough to know that it's wrong. There is still a lot of fear, not only of political consequences, but of physical consequences from crossing the message of the day coming out of Donald and Tucker and Steve Bannon. Stuart, is, 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 Mitt, is Willard Mitt Romney... Um, a, law, a client of yours, a man whose presidential campaign you basically ran, is that is he afraid, physically afraid of Donald Trump? Is that what's going on? Why Mitt Romney can't speak out just on behalf no, of... I'm not sure. Of, I, 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 I was just trying to Google this. I'm not sure that, that Mitt didn't say something on this. Um, what, I always, what I always say in these kind of moments is, look, um, 
If everybody in the Republican Party had acted like Mitt Romney, we wouldn't have a, a Donald Trump. I mean, he's the guy that went out in the spring of 16 and attacked. And he's the first uh, senator to vote to impeach a president of his own party. And he did it twice. I mean, yep. like, you know, that's yeah, like I'm, you're like him for the cycle. He'll probably get a chance be, to do it a third time. Um, <laughs> I want to be I want to be I want to be clear. I'm not launching a broadside here. No, I'm, I know. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, this is I, not like a Mitt Romney's a bad. I, look, I agree. Look, Mitt Romney has been I, better than almost I any other Republican elected official. But in true. this moment, there was this weird silence around this I, particular issue on, on everyone's part. Yeah, which I think, in a political sense, there's two big opportunities for Democrats here that could be um, sort of moving tectonic plates. One is if they became more the party that defended law enforcement which I think is a, yes. a, a a huge opportunity. I mean, you saw Biden has, has, has put tons of money in this new bill for police. I mean, even attacking IRS agents is attacking law enforcement, is attacking the idea that you might have some enforcement. It's a function of enforcement. And the other is if, if Democrats could become the tough on Russia party again, right. which sure. they once, you know, owned um, in our lifetime. Yeah, sure. And, and you, you know, you, <laughs> how weird is it to see Nancy Pelosi getting off a plane in Taiwan and getting attacked by Republicans? Because, you know, she's like getting in the yeah. face of Chinese warlords too much. Now, whether or not Democrats <laughs> can capitalize on that is, is another question. But I look, it, it goes to, <laughs> that's why I call this book, It Was All a Lie. They really never cared about police. They really never cared about right. being telephone Russia. They were just marketing slogans. It was like, you know, Chevrolet's mm -hmm. the heartbeat of America. I mean, so they didn't like take their cars to cardiologists. It was just a slogan. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they, they didn't really believe it. And, you know, they kind of seemed like shocked that you would believe it. Yeah. Well, didn't you, didn't you get the joke? I mean, I think Rick and I were like, well, no, nobody told us it was a joke. We right, thought... right. We're supposed to. We're supposed to be the cynical asshole I mean... cons consultants, and we're like, we yeah, believe we're, in America. We believe this stuff. You know, I, I said before, you know, I feel like the guy who was working for Bernie Madoff and actually thought we were beating the market. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. this stuff. We weren't. Yeah, it was all. And look, nobody understands Trump. I study Trump, and has been more right on Trump than Rick. And right, right. Stuart, how many, how many, uh, let me ask you this question really quickly. How many senatorial elections have you won? Oh, God, this is, this is, this no, is. You got to no, know well, this number I, off the top I, of your I head. Did, Come on. It's so depressing. Um, I, I did sit down and figure out that I had elect, helped elect Republican governors or senators in over half the country. And, that's, a lot, that's a lot of races. You know, I have tried uh, in this little period not to attack former clients. Mm. <laughs> It's hard but to I do. It's, it's hard just, to do, though. You have a lot of former clients. It's just bad form, and and ultimately, you know, I think that there is a collective guilt here, of which you know I'm certainly part of. Right. I mean, the first sentence of my book was blame me. Yeah. So yeah. I don't want to say, you know, why did these people do? It's like you know, I mean, there's that trope of books that people write about Washington, like if only they had listened to me. Like I couldn't write that book because they did listen right. to me. So, yeah. but I. It is, a, it is a bad, bad feeling to look at those who voted not to convict Donald Trump and think about how many of those you worked for. It's, it's really not, not a good well, feeling. I remember when the book came out and I read it, I thought, at some point I need to go up to, I need to, go up to Vermont and, and 
and drink a lot with Stuart because I think he probably, you know, there's some, I mean, you can only get so dark in a podcast, but you can get a lot darker over a bottle of like really good bourbon. Hey, so Rick, here's, I want to play this little thing. So we, you know, look, we could talk all day. We, t- we talked about Tish sure. James just a little bit. Oh, I do want to, just because the, the one six committee is reconvening uh, this week. And, uh, yep. and there's this other large thing, Stuart alluded to it, right? Which is the Mar-a-Lago uh, related classified documents thing. Trump goes on handy last week and you know, Trump says a lot of crazy shit. Here's Donald Trump is on Hannity talking about, well, Hannity's asking him some reasonable questions about whether uh, these all these documents he took, all of them marked top secret. We've seen the photographs. Hannity basically kind of going like, what the fuck, Donald? You had said on Truth Social a number of times, you did de- declassify. I did declassify, yes. Okay. Is there a process? What was your process to declassify? It doesn't have to be a process, as no. I understand it. You know, there's different people say different right. things. But as I understand, there doesn't have to be. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it, because you're sending it to Mar-a-Lago or to wherever you're sending it. And there doesn't have to be a process. There can be a process, but there doesn't have to be. You're the president. You make that decision. So when you send it, it's declassified. We, I declassified everything. I declassified everything. Everything. Well, I'll tell you, man, that would get that would get a lot of spies off the hook. So because that means that the stuff that they stole yeah, is they not like, classified. So, so in my, in my in my misspent youth, John, I, I I was an appointee in the first Bush administration as a young, fresh out of school asshole. Now I'm yeah. an old asshole, um, and I, I worked for this guy named Dick Cheney when he was Secretary of Defense. And if I had decided on my last day at work to load up some boxes with top secret documents and take them home, <laughs> somebody would have kicked my fucking door down and taken me away to prison. This is not how any of this works. I mean, look, but it, but it, but it may be sufficient in the right wing media bubble for for all these people, and they will find. You know, Leonard Leo will get on the phone and say, "Get me six attorneys who can make a case that this is a real thing," and they'll write some yeah. bullshit papers or they'll go argue in court. That that declassification is is a, is a purely notional mental process and not, doesn't go through the things that the law about classified the National Security Act it lays out for it, and they will have half of America thinking, yeah, I guess they're right. The FBI is just overreaching; they're just trying to get Trump again. And and you know what? You get the wrong jury, Trump walks out of the room. Yeah. Just just think about this construction in what he says. He says, okay. when you're president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying it's declassified, even by thinking about it. Okay, that's what he says. How, does, how close is that to when you're a star, they let you do it, you can do anything? It's the it, same like grammatical construction, yeah. and they're both equally like, I am without limits, I can do whatever the fuck I want because I'm either president or a star, which before being president, being a star, he thought made him omnipotent. And now, or a television star, a reality TV star, now he's he was president. He thought that made him omnipotent. Stuart, it's like, I mean, it goes to a deeper set of questions about Trump's psyche, but is that not basically it? He just thinks that essentially whatever title he has, star, president, ex-president, mm-hmm. entitles him to do whatever the fuck he wants. Sure. I mean, he's acted that way his entire life. I mean, look, this is a guy who, by the time he was in the 10th grade, was a millionaire because of inherited money. So he's always operated that way. I don't blame Trump for this. I blame yeah. the Republican Party. You know, I mean, they're the ones that accepted this guy. I mean, nobody called bullshit on it. Oh, they tried to. I mean, Ted Cruz did it for a few hours. And Marco did it literally for a few hours. But the party just... Uh, collapsed and and i just find it so extraordinary i mean i you know people say you can't talk about 
you know, anything about World War II and Germany, because that means that, you know, you're definitely saying that this is going to end up with, you know, 100 million people killed. But I, I, I have the opposite view. I think you have to talk about this. And I will never ask myself how 1930s right. Germany happened again. But Because yep. you, you think, right it, even, again, without doing the, the crazy thing, I mean, look, I think we would all agree, look, I mean, Hitler's a lot smarter than Trump, and Hitler had more of an actual ideology than Trump has, I would I would maintain. But, you know, not to praise Hitler here, but you see, you think when you look around and see how the part, how the Republican Party has acted and how the, our society has, broadly speaking, and obviously media is part of this and, and, and the culture in general, how they have accommodated Trump's deviance, that you look at that and say, that's a, has clear echoes with what happened in 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 in, 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 in Weimar Germany. It's, it's yeah, unquestion, unquestionably, the 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 guy that I focus on is Franz von Papen, mm -hmm. who was a Prussian aristocrat who more than anyone ushered in Trump to power, and he wrote Hitler. I think, Hitler, Hitler, I think to, he Hitler to power. A it's a it's a it's a legit Freudian slip. Power. Sorry, it was just <laughs> Hitler to power. So in America, his name is Franz von Priebus. <laughs> I'm like, there's never, I'm like, there's never, there's a book. That's a guy's book, a name who helped Trump, who I've never read in any one of the single books that's been written. Who is that guy? Franz von Heimenheimer. The Franz von okay. Priebus is a pretty good, pretty good little line there. So I never wrote his memoir in 1953, right? And he's still defending it. And, and what he says is exactly the same mentality that Republicans have. What you have to understand is that what we, the Prussian aristocrats, we had lost touch with the working class, and the working class was going to become Bolshevik. And the only way that we could stop that was <laughs> Hitler. You know, we were doing the right thing at the time. And it's, it's exactly analogous to yeah. McConnell, uh, mm -hmm. McCarthy, all of these people. They thought they could control Trump. And, you know, you end up trying to appoint like a Supreme Court justice and you end up running for your life and hiding on your under desk by the people that you empowered. Do you think Merrick Garland is going to indict Trump or not on the on, related to the documents and the and and having the Espionage Act having violated security issues that are, have been raised by the documents? I suspect he will indict him. I don't think it doesn't. I don't. I don't think it changes the political layout of the country that much, except that liberals will say, "Oh, it's done now. It's over. We can you know," and it and it right. won't matter to Republicans. Right. Okay. So that's, so that, so you guys both agree that, that Trump, he could be, you, you both think he's likely to get indicted, but it's, it won't matter in terms of him getting the Republican nomination. Uh, if he decides to it pursue will it. Matter. Yeah, it'll, 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 it'll help absolutely. Right. And Rick, positive. you think you, and it'll become a litmus test that you have to support Trump now. Right. And Rick, you because think, you, you so, have sorry. to fight the deep state. Right. And, and you both think he's running. And you both think that that he's he's right. He, you both think he's likely to run for president. Absolutely. Look, the, the, here's here's one thing about Tish James that, that that I think everybody's missing the ball on. Donald Trump's business model now is no longer real estate. It's an email list milking the shit out of his donors. Yeah. It is his politics is a better revenue source, a more profitable. It doesn't cost him that much to run that situation. Versus actually having to do real estate and get loans and build things. Donald Trump likes the easy money of politics. He also is the worst narcissist on the planet Earth in the history of mankind. <laughs> he desperately right. misses being back in the game, in the spotlight, in the center of every conversation. So in a lot of ways, even though the FBI was kicking the door down at Mar-a-Lago, I promise you there was a part of Donald Trump that was like, yes, this is good for me. Right. Okay. So so that's that's all the, that's all true. 
the 1-6 committee is going to have this hearing on Wednesday, probably their last hearing. Um, and Rick, I'll stick with you just for, to, to get this and I'll go to Stuart in a second. There's a, I think there's a general view uh, from everyone that I know, uh, my sources and, and, and my, my, my friends mm -hmm. who I've talked to in DC, that this hearing could be a disappointment, that they kind of have that they were great. And people who were fans of what they did in, in June and July thought they did a fantastic job. But now the DOJ has clearly got a grand jury up. They're pursuing this case on their own. The action has sort of shifted away. The committee did its job. It told a story, told it brilliantly. Liz Cheney uh, laid herself down on the tracks for for, for liberty and for anti-Trumpism. Uh, but that there's a chance it's going to be kind of like mostly summary statements. The thing that, that we didn't see in June and July, which was a lot of gas baggery, uh, among the committee members. They told mm -hmm. the story, they broke news, they told they had an incredible narrative structure, they made great TV for the first time ever, that this could be more of a, like a normal congressional hearing where the Congress people are gonna, are gonna pontificate, there's not really any, any gonna be any big uh, bombshell, and, and it will be kind of clear that the 1-6 committee, for all intents and purposes, is sort of dead as a politically salient factor. Do you fear that? I, I, look, I fear it, but I'm not quite ready to declare it's gonna happen. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you why. I think I have a couple a couple thoughts about that. Um, one is I think if they can get towards Jenny Thomas as a part of this story in the next hearing, that will again draw media attention and and public attention back into this question. The second thing is happening outside the committee that I think might be big. I'm not sure yet, but Denver Riggleman apparently has a book coming out. He ran apparently ran the whole data operation behind the scenes, like getting all these phone records, stuff that hasn't come out yet. That yep. could, and we'll see what that 60 Minutes interview in his book looks like, that could be, a, I think, a, a, a major, you know, some, a lot more chum in the water to bring interest back onto this. Yes. Well, 60 Minutes, De uh, Denver Ruggeman, by the time this podcast airs, we'll know what he said. But yes, that book comes out on the day this podcast drops, and I'm interested to hear what he thinks. Before I ask you this question, Stuart, I want to play one, uh, one additional thing. I want to play a little Michael Cohen. Uh, who was on a couple shows uh, this week. He's got a book coming out also. I sat next to the guy last week uh, on uh, at the end of last week with uh, with Nicole Wallace. And and, and here's what he he talked. He talked about how much cooperation he had done with the with the, mm -hmm. both the DA in, in Manhattan and with the, and with Tish James, who are who he says, you know, working uh, hand in hand behind the scenes. He made a forecast about all of the new kinds of criminal and other legal uh, pr prosecutions, other legal entanglements that Trump faced on the basis kind of projecting out of the Tish James thing. I want to play this Michael Cohen talking about just the depth of Trump's problems now with Nicole Wallace last week on Deadline White House. I believe there'll be potentially a criminal prosecution by SDNY, uh, especially now that it's not Trump controlled. Um, and I also believe that there will be other criminal investigations that will be forthcoming. But remember what Donald does. And again, this is all part of the playbook that I am responsible for helping to create. This playbook is delay, delay, delay. The nice part, he's not delaying anything from Tish James. She's not sitting back. She's not, she's now, she's fully committed and she'll go down in history as helping to save democracy. So he says IRS, SDNY, uh, and other criminal investigations um, all coming out of the you know, on the aftermath of Tish James. And so I just want to get a, a, a kind of summary judgment here from you, Stuart. It, across the board, all of those things and any 1-6 related charges coming out of that grand jury and any uh, indictments coming out of Merrick Garland on the questions of classified documents. You think all of it in toto, and this is a question, not a, not a statement, You think, but you do you think in toto all of it 
is kind of irrelevant to the question of Donald Trump's continued power and what he does to America if he runs again and becomes the Republican nominee in the face of all of that. Well, this is a point where, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that Republicans nominated a guy who talks in public about having sex with his daughter. So um, I think, uh, yes, I think the only thing that might potentially, and this is probably just my, you know, latent uh, optimism about anything that Republican decency of Republicans, if, if it came out that this guy really had been somehow careless or worse with uh, national security involving sources of intelligence that resulted in people getting killed. You know, that, that right. stories about a rise, and, and Rick knows a lot more about this than I do because he comes out of that, that, that DOD world, um, of sources in the CIA getting killed at an unusual rate and, and something was wrong. If they do that backtrack and they could pin, try to d- develop a credible fact pattern that because Donald Trump did this, people died who were right. out there risking their lives to help defend America. I think that would be a trigger. But the odds of that happening, if for no other reason than the same, you know, reason that so many of these spy cases never go to trial because they don't want to reveal their sources. Um, they do, you know, plea bargains. The odds of that happening are small. But it, it look, what Donald Trump has done and, and Republican Party has done is attack the institutions of civil society. So you attack law enforcement, you attack the judiciary, you attack the Justice Department, you attack the voting system. So all of that is if you don't believe in the system, you have to believe in a strong man or a strong woman that, to be able to, to save it. And so you look at someone like DeSantis and, and you know, Rick has uh, watched this guy and, and it's just been dead right about him from the very beginning. So, you know, DeSantis is a smart guy by all accounts, right? I mean, he's a well-educated person, but he's out there saying stuff that he knows isn't true, that is very dangerous, that attacks these institutions of government. That is, is what they want to do. They, they want to collapse the pillars of a civil society so that they can have an autocracy. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. So I want to That come really up. is what they want to do, because they understand if we go along the course that we're going in a, a world in America that is becoming increasingly non-white, Donald Trump's coalition is 85% white, the country's 58 to 60% white, and probably less so since we've been on this podcast, yeah, yeah. they're going to lose. Right. Nobody tries to change the rules of a game they're winning. Yeah. And that's, I think that's what's happening. So Rick, here's my, 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 my question to you just out of that, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it, it, I want to get to DeSantis a little later in the podcast, but right now I just want to ask you this one question that was pointed that, that Stuart said. You know, you, I always thought back, you know, when you, in the earlier phases of, of Trump, that the reason why someone, everyone was so interested in trying to find out whether there was this elevator video of Trump um, uh, mm-hmm. physically assaulting Melania was that that would have been a line. Like if you actually had video evidence of, of, even with the Republicans who loved him, if you saw him hitting his wife, that would kill him, right? And that was part of why people chased it for so long. Um, and, and as far as we know, it doesn't exist uh, to this day, but I know there's still people out there looking. Um, <laughs> uh, some some nuts are doing that. But the second thing, the second thing is, is the thing that people have said more recently. You know, like 
the Republican Party walked right up to the edge of being on Putin's side in the Ukraine war. And they kind of they saw Trump edge up to them. They go, oh, wait, 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 wait. We can't be on Putin. We really can't be out there and actually say we're on Putin's side in this right. war. Our our base will not accept that. That was another red line. So on on Stewart's point about clearly, clear evidence that led to to the death of Americans because of his mishandling of or, or, or nefarious handling of classified documents, that would be a red line. Is not nuclear material, isn't the nuclear thing not just a red line in and of itself? Because no. for a lot of people in America, it's like, you know, nuclear secrets is a thing that, you know, uh, resonates <laughs> with people in a pretty deep I, way, I, right? I, I, John, oh, nuclear John, secrets, they go, okay, that's bad. Five years ago, I would have told you that, yeah, absolutely, that'll that'll be it. That'll be where Republicans go, oh, God, God damn it, Donald, you, you blew it. I don't think so. They will say, well, he knows better than I do. His judgment is, is better than, my, than mine. Uh, he, if he did it, he had a reason. If you don't understand his reason, that's because you're not as smart as Donald Trump. I mean, I'm shorthanding it a little bit, but I've joked about this before. You could find a dead hooker in the back of uh, in the back of his car, and people would make an excuse for it. Oh, Jason Miller yeah. left that there. He didn't do it. I mean, yeah, this is. Right. The, the, I have heard <laughs> so many excuses. I sat in focus groups in 16, which is why, which yeah. is what I called the year I gave up on focus groups. And these people, you could confront them with any fact about Donald Trump. You could bring anything to the table and they would say, no, you're lying. Mr. Trump didn't do that. Mr. Trump never said anything about John McCain. If he did, John McCain deserved it because he was in league with Barack Obama. He betrayed America for a Kenyan Muslim socialist sleeper agent. (laughs) And look, it's hard to convince them of anything anymore because they live in a separate media bubble. Yeah. And more and more living in that media bubble, the qualifier for being there is that you say that everything else from every other source is a lie. And it's really hard to find a line where where Republicans, especially in leadership, wouldn't cross. I mean, Mitch McConnell came out and gave a blistering speech on 1-7, and it wasn't long before, yeah. well, yes, of course I'd vote for the nominee if he's the nominee of my party. Of course I would. Nothing could stop me there. And the LOL, nothing matters, nihilist Carl Hungus culture in Republican politics is all of it now. I got to say, like, occasionally, I, I try not to interact with anybody on Twitter um, as a, just as a rule. <laughs> but the only time I feel compelled is when someone confuses me with Rick and Steve Schmidt in this, and they say things like, oh, you, you former Republicans. And I'm always like, no, I just want to be really clear. Not a former Republican. Also not a former Democrat. Never been a member of any political party. I just want to say that because... I don't want anybody to ever associate myself with a group of people who now routinely say things, Rick, to your point, like Donald Trump is smarter than me and Donald Trump knows more than me. Yeah. What kind of a fucking, what kind of a life are you well, living you, if those words would ever come out of your mouth? I have seen, I have seen people saying, if, you know, well, maybe he has like the nuclear codes. They go, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, they change the nuclear codes every day. So, <laughs> so what he has, what he has, right. makes some old nuclear codes, but that's, that's like right. scrapbook material, you know? I mean, it's yeah. like, okay. You know, he doesn't have the football anymore. What's the harm? All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Stuart Stevens and Rick Wilson of The Lincoln Project right here on Helen Highwater. And we are back with Stuart Stevens and Rick Wilson of The Lincoln Project on Hell and High Water. I want to shift, shift topics here. I'm going to talk about the Lincoln Project a little bit. And I, I'm going to tell you now, I'm going to play this the, the Showtime trailer for the Lincoln Project doc series. I have not seen it. I, I have a show on Showtime. I know a lot of people there. I've not seen it. I don't know anything about it, what's in it. My only experience with this 
as Rick may remember, uh, is that when I was yeah. when we came out and shot the circus yeah. at the night of the vice presidential debate in 2020 in Salt Lake City, where you guys were operating, uh, we were there at the same time as the doc crew that was shooting on this that was with you guys for some long period of time. Well, the, the series is almost out. It comes out in October. Well, wait, 7th. so John, you don't understand how much you're in this then? Uh, how much they put in might, that yeah. scene when you were there? Yeah, you that were... scene? Yeah, I feel pretty. I feel pretty. I feel pretty much pretty... a whole episode. <laughs> as I understand. Okay, I feel. I feel. I, I feel pretty. Co- I feel pretty confident the Showtime wouldn't screw me quite that way. But you never know. Let's play the trailer, and then we'll sure. talk briefly about it on the other side. Any comment about this Lincoln Project? They should call it the Losers Project. He's an idiot. That was painful, Donald. They weren't laughing at me. There's nothing noble about us. More people have resigned. Did you see the article in the Times? It's falling apart. Nobody cares. They care about what we're going to do in 22 and beyond. Now, if you're looking at that trailer and video, all of those are voiceovers. And I believe... uh, there's nothing noble about us is, is uh, Stuart. I think I recognize your voice. And, uh, and I believe uh, nobody cares. They care about what we're going to do in 22 and beyond is you, Rick. So you guys both made the trailer. Congratulations. Um, have you have you seen the series? No. We, 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 we have not seen whatever the final product's going to look like. Right. You know, we're, we're, they're still editing as of now. I presume we'll see a, a final version for legal review, uh, you know, in the next few days. But... Uh, let me say this, you know, are you, con- are you concerned? You had a documentarian living with you for long, for like how about a year more? About a year. Yeah. Fisher, Fisher Stevens and his crew. Yeah. I, I know personally, if I ever had a documentary film crew living with me for a year or more, I would be very concerned about the final output because I'm, you know, I'm a walking well, felon. I'm a walking felony. So uh, are you guys uh, at all worried about how this is going to make you look? Look, I, here's my, here's my take on it. You know, the Lincoln project was the fastest growing, you know, most impactful super PAC I can make an argument, you know, without a lot of ego involved, certainly in 2020 and, and, and maybe ever. We built this movement out of an op-ed we wrote in the New York Times that grew to be, you know, nearly 700,000 donors and millions and millions of followers and people who took action in the 2020 race in the States. And it grew fast. Like a lot of startups, we had our share of growing pains. We had our share of troubles. You know, now the Fox News Breitbart version of of our troubles was always luridly over-exaggerated, but there were people who left the organization. No one was trapped in the Lincoln Project. You weren't forced to stay if you didn't like it. People will have their say. I think people on every side of every every argument will have their say, and we'll see what it is. Stuart, I I look at the, uh, when I look at the Lincoln Project, the the leadership of it, I I was curious just what your guys, your current uh, titles were. And I, I know Rick is a uh, you know, co-founder, um, which I knew already. Um, I see you there, Stuart, a senior advisor. You came in a little later, right? You weren't part of that original founding crew with... Uh, with yeah. And, and so I'm curious about what, you know, I mean, Rick's alluding to, uh, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's just, you know, it's alluding to, there was obviously the whole John Weaver incident, the, the, a lot of the controversy that, that arose out of that. Weaver no longer obviously associated with the Lincoln Project, but also, you know, a lot of people who were... I pointed out before we went on the air that Rick, you and I were on with Jennifer Horn back in January of 2021. She's no longer around. A lot of people who were around in the early incarnation of the leadership, some of the people who were there when I was about on site sure. in October of 2020, are gone now. There's been controversy on the uh, related to Weaver and and the sexual stuff, and there's also been controversy related to 
uh, some financial stuff. And there's then the Steve Schmidt of it all, which is a whole, just a whole controversial, like black hole in the earth um, uh, in Steve's, you know, writing his own versions of history and, and attacking a lot of people. Again, Steve, someone I've liked, I like, and I, I respect, but this seems to have occupied a lot of his mental space uh, for a period of time. He's a little obsessive about, about trying to, what he thinks is set the record straight on the Lincoln Project. Again, I have no reason to, to challenge his view of it, but he's got a long version of it that he's put on Substack. I, so Stuart, you weren't part of the original thing here, right? And I, I'm curious what your view is as someone who's a student. And I, I mean this not in any way, in a, in yeah, a, in a sarcastic I, way. I, I let, me, let me ask a question. Just yeah. As someone who I think, I, I mean, I mean this earnestly, one of the smartest people I know in politics and someone who is a, a, a really clear-eyed observer of human nature, of organizational change, and of, of how, again, as Rick said, startups often have difficulties in growth and then they have to evolve. Just give me your kind of, you were both an insider, but you came in late, your view of all of that uh, as like, how should how should a person who's neither a Lincoln Project hater nor an acolyte, how should they think about all of that stuff? Well, look, you know, I can say stuff about the Lincoln Project that I think Rick can't because it'll seem self-flattery, but not in our lifetime, I think, has something happened like the Lincoln Project. You know, th these guys wrote an op-ed and a movement showed up and what is extraordinary about it is the Lincoln Project now has more social media followers than the DNC or RNC. Yep. It has this huge number of donors. It has millions of followers. The podcast gets two and a half million downloads a, a, a month now. And, you know, we have these streaming television. And nothing has ever been done to try to grow the Lincoln Project. It is people finding it on its own. And it's the only large organization I know in politics in America that you really have people on the left and the right. It is a true citizens movement. The truth of the Lincoln Project is that it's not about any individual. It really is about all these people out there who think that the country is in crisis. And the reason that the Lincoln Project, um, I think, is really sort of increased in its relevance is because the theory of the Lincoln Project is sadly proven to be very true and maybe more true, more true than we thought, right. which is that, you know, the, the country's in an existential danger. It's Trump and Trumpism. So I think it's really worth noting there was like over $3 billion spent on uh, campaigns and super PACs in the 20 election. And the only one that Trump tried to get the goddamn Justice Department to shut right. down was the Lincoln Project. And the Lincoln Project spent, you know, a, a good bit of money, but an infinitesimal amount compared to the larger amount. So it, it's proven to have an outside impact. And I think that's because of the the fact that it it exists for one purpose, which is to defend America and defend democracy. And look, working for it. I had this incredible re realization early on when I started working with these guys, like how liberating it was not to have a client. Right. So people say, like, <laughs> how did you make all these videos? What was the process? And doing it in secret is there wasn't a process. No process. Right. So Rick, Rick and I, you know, we get up, we get on these calls and we decide what to make. You know, Steve have ideas, great ideas, you know, reader have ideas, people have ideas. And then we just go make the damn things and put them up. And we never focus grouped once. And if we went too far, no one was going to get blamed for it. Yep. Like it wasn't, no one was going to go to Joe Biden and go, hey, listen, dude, what about this? You know, this thing, the Lincoln Project went a little far here. And it gave us the ability to do stuff with an efficiency that other people can't do. I mean, if you're in a campaign and you go out and you make an ad calling your yep. opponent a liar, your candidate, yep. if asked, yep. is your opponent a liar, damn well better say yes. Yeah. 
or, or you're going to be out, you know, out there. So that is what strikes me as so different about the Lincoln Project. And if the Lincoln Project disappeared, and I think this is really kind of fascinating and important, there's really not a second-tier Lincoln Project. You take any big right. super PAC on the left or the right, if Priorities USA Today went away, another right. super PAC would do it. If you know Crossroads went away, another super PAC on the right would, would fill it. Yep. There's really nothing yep. like the Lincoln Project. So Rick, here's my here's the question I want to ask you is this. I don't know what your donors are like, but if I were a very, very rich donor, a multimillionaire or a billionaire, sure. and I and I was like, I, w- I believed in the cause that the Lincoln Project represents, mm-hmm. and I'd read all the press about various things, mm-hmm. ranging from the serious investigative work that was done around Weaver and some of the other things that we've seen. You probably have some, you probably find some fault with some of those stories, but whatever. If I'd read it all, and and then I'd... I, I walked, I looked on Twitter and I read Sherry Jacobus and people who are just constantly like pissing on you from a height. I'm not crediting it. I'm just, <laughs> I'm saying, I'm making myself into a billionaire donor who's looking to, know, who's looking to write a very large check, right? Sure. I would sit down with you in a room and I would say, hey, you know what? I know what it's like to run an organization and there's always haters. And when you're really successful, people are going to hate you. I'm never going to get to the bottom of all this bullshit. Here's what I'd like to know, Rick. Presumably everything hasn't been perfect. And what I'd like to hear you reflect on is some of the real mistakes you think you've made and how you've remedied them and why I can now happily write you a check for $20 million because you're, you're self-aware, you, you know that you have, you have yeah. been imperfect, you have made mistakes, but you've done things to fix, to fix it. Sure. And now this is an organization I believe in. If you can persuade me on the basis of the next three minutes, here's my checkbook, I'm going to write the check. I would seriously, that is yeah. the question Look, I would ask about as a, we, a prospective donor. Listen, John, we had that conversation. We had some very difficult times in, in, in 2021 having to go out. First off, about 80% of our money is raised from small dollar donations. Okay. You wouldn't turn, um, you wouldn't turn away a large have to dollar go out. donation though if somebody came to you. <laughs> we, we, do, we do not turn them away and they're back in business. We had that conversation a lot of times. We had very, very strong supporters who kicked our ass about things. And, you know, part of it was we grew so fast because when this thing started out, we raised approximately $450 a month between December and May. This was not something where all of us got together and said, yeah, we're going to make so much money. We're going to do this and that. We were like, how do we do the work? How do we get this done? And so we grew so quickly and things got so politicized. And the, and the fact of the matter was we had people inside the, the, the tent pissing out and people outside the tent pissing in. We had a degree of speed kills and there were a lot of people who thought they were being left behind. I'm sorry about that. But we've had to sit down with donors. We've had to sit down with people. And what we did to be, to grow up as an organization was pretty straightforward. First off, we took a hard look at, at our failure modes. And for all that, that, that I'm a pretty good ad maker uh, and Reed's a pretty good political organizer, and Stu's the, the guru of this uh, of ad making. We didn't have a lot of people internally who were great managers. We just didn't. We grew so fast. It was like, we need somebody to do this field operation. We need somebody to do this campaign operation here. And we were putting people into the fight and not building an organizational infrastructure for a $100 million company. So what did we do? First off, you know, in the aftermath of the Mike, Ron, and Jennifer era, and, and some of those wounds were perfectly self-inflicted, by the way, mm-hmm. by the organization. Um, we went out, we had a outside group look at the Weaver thing. We gave them a large sum of money and said, what do you want us to do? What do you need? They reviewed, I think, 330,000 emails. They interviewed dozens and dozens of people around the staff and around the story. 
We said, if it's bad, tell us. If it sucks, tell us. We want to know. We're going to lay it out there. They came out and said, there was no wrongdoing by the management and leadership team of the Lincoln Project. And I, I hope the documentary covers this fairly. I'm sure there will be some drama about it. But the fact of the matter was, when allegations were brought to the Lincoln Project by a person who worked for one of the founders, they were reviewed by general counsel. None of the people named in it wanted to be involved. Most of the people named in it were people from the Kasich era or well before. No one ever brought us an accusation that John had any kind of interaction with underage people during the campaign at all or before. We had no knowledge of that until the New York Times article hit. I hope the documentary tells that story. That is something we've talked to donors about. That is something we've had very serious conversations with a lot of people about. And we went out and got the Paul Hastings Law Firm, which is a top-notch independent investigative law right. firm. And they took months and months. And believe me, there were plenty of days I woke up thinking, God damn it, another day of being called a pedophile on the internet because the Paul Hastings Law Firm is taking their sweet fucking time. Yeah. Well, they took their time. They did a very thorough investigation. They went through this thing, nuts and bolts, all the way down. The second thing we did to grow up as an organization was we set up uh, out to go ahead and make our finances completely transparent, which we've done. We never broke the law. We never even scooted up against breaking the law. The fact that we used a pass-through company was the same exact thing that the Trump organization did, and they never took a lick of shit for it. We went out and had a stewardship report put together. Again, outside folks reviewed it, outside legal reviewed it, outside financial accountability folks reviewed it. And they discovered that, oh my God, we spent a larger percentage of our money on voter contact than almost any other super PAC in the country. Nobody got $20 million out of this organization. I say this all the time. If I divide up the number of hours I've worked for what I've been paid the last three years, I could work at Popeye's making biscuits. It's a fantasy that has been used to attack us for a lot of the last couple of years. Well, so look, there are plenty of things we did wrong. We've talked about them at length. We own them all the time. Yeah. But we also have, we've also reached a point, at least I have, where some of the, the accusations from inside and outside, you know, look, when, when a bunch of people paid, um, uh, for what we've told Jeff Rowe, a lot of money to send mailers to all of our neighborhoods and our homes and our donors, yeah. every single one of us got death threats at a level that even I had never experienced before. I'm done putting up with people making accusations like that, that we somehow harbored a pedophile. The day we found out was the day the New York Times story came out. I got to tell you, John, it was one of the shittiest days of my life. I wanted nothing more than to go to Texas and pop one in, in the middle of his head. I just want, I, I, it, it's an accusation that is meant to bring violence and threats of violence to us. Right. And it works. Yeah. Well, listen, it's a very strong response, and it's a thing that, you know, I think you can't talk about it without addressing. And and you guys, look, I mean, what I see from you guys is you continue to crank out stuff. And, you know, that's a sign of an organization that's still healthy. You guys still seem to have... You know, can, I can I tell you one more thing we did, John, yeah. that, that actually fundamentally changed the organization? Yeah. So Reed and Stuart and Joe Trippi and I and the rest of the, of the team, the organization is no longer managed day to day by us. Right. We're like trained monkeys now. Hey, guys, go make ads. Three women run this organization. Ryan Wiggins is our chief of staff. Tess Strand runs all of our operational stuff. <laughs> and Michelle Kinney is my creative director. Yeah. 
So putting three women in charge of the organization was actually a really smart move. Well, Our lives are much better. Well, one of the ways, Stuart, that I think when I, if I were, if I were Rick, I would say, if people say that he's been profiteering off this organization, I'd say, you think if I took $20 million out of this organization, I'd still be living in Tallahassee? Who the fuck would do that? Jesus. I drive, I drive a five-year-old Volvo for fuck's sake. I just, I just want, I just want <laughs> to say, it, you guys have been the subject of so much fascination for so long. And, and again, the documentary is coming out. Like I said, I haven't seen it. I have no insight into it whatsoever. It's zero. I'm I'm eager to watch it partly because as Stuart said there's a chance that I'm in it in some embarrassing way and I even if it's for yeah, six seconds John, I want to make sure I, I want yeah. I spent most of the time that I, I spent most of my time in that office that night quietly masturbating in the corner and so I'm just hoping that he can get that on camera because that wouldn't hey be... listen you you had a there's a there's a there's a writer for nude scenes in that in the in the I'm, I'm just saying I'm just saying I don't need to be part of a new Lincoln Project controversy they harbored a masturbator uh who was someone he's like the trained masturbator from the circus um who's they they those guys let him do that while they're watching the debate I'm like oh Jesus but here's the thing that Rick says Stuart at the end of that at the little clip in that trailer where he says uh, no one cares about this. They're only going to care what we do in 22 and beyond. And I agree. Aside from inside baseball people, Rick, to your, this is the larger point. You guys have done a purge. You've come out the other side. You're making content that is that moves the needle. And for a normal human beings out in America land, you know, this is all inside baseball bullshit. And they just want to know, is the democracy going to be saved or not? And, and you guys are, are fighting on the right side of that, as far as I'm concerned, to those of us on Team Democracy. So that's, to me, is, is a relevant thing. So I want to shift the focus to that then. So what you guys are actually doing in 22 and, and yeah. beyond. And well, I mean, and to lead into your question, you know, I, I think one thing I'm, I'm hoping you'll see, because I certainly gave it, and Reed and I and Stu all talked about this in, in, a, in our last interviews we did. You know, you don't have to like us. Yeah, we're we're kind of bastards a lot of the time. Look, like in a lot of wars, you're not going to send the guys the, the the guys that are crawling through the mud. Sometimes you're not going to bring them to a dinner party. You know, Reed Reed always says this is not a Montessori school. Right. I'd say Stuart's a bastard most of the time. Let's be honest about this. Like you guys are a bastard well, a lot I mean, of the time. Stuart's a bastard like ninety four percent of the time. So listen, here's an ad I want to play. So you guys have you guys have had ads that I've seen that are in some very hot races, and then and we'll talk about a couple of those, and then talk about the midterms more broadly. But this again to focus on what you guys are doing on the playing field right now. Mm -hmm. There's an ad I want to play that's uh, that's about the salutes at Doug Mastriano's rally in Pennsylvania. This came out in September. We've all now seen it. This is the first time I saw it was at the Mastriano rally. Right. You guys have done various versions of this of this ad in different yes. forms, 30 seconds, one minute mm -hmm. longer, even a two minute mm -hmm. ad, I think. And now, of course, we're seeing it at Trump rallies all the time. Trump, is, yeah. you know, and just like last week, did a rally in North Carolina on Friday and they were doing it again. So I'll just play the ad because it's it's fascinating. There's, a, there's a, an unknown speaker at this Mastriano rally, who's basically telling the crowd what to do. Let's listen to this. And we'll do that by putting our right hand in the air on the count of three. If you're willing to do this, can you say what they said at Gettysburg? When you see us lined up as one, sweep down the hill to victory. On the count of three, we'll bring our hand down as one. Father, I pray that Indeed, Pennsylvania will be like Little Round Top, and America will have a new birth of liberty. As one on the count of three. One, two, three. That's one! Okay, so if, even if you don't see what's happening in that, you can hear what's happening in that, and it's fucking terrifying, right? And I, yeah. I want, Stuart, I'd like you just to tell me, like, I don't know some of the lingo here. There's all, obviously, all in, the, in this world, there's all these, co the world of crazy right conspiracy theory, married to history buffs, married to civil war fetishizations of the rebels, you know, all of that shit, right? 
I, I'm not like a student of all that stuff, but my sense is that there's probably a bunch of stuff to decode there, like with some weird decoder ring that we could like figure out. But what I see is when I see these people doing this stuff is I see like some way for them to basically do a Hitler salute without calling it a Hitler salute. Like we'll hold one finger up rather than doing like a pure Gestapo or a pure uh, Third Reich symbol. Is that what I'm seeing at all these rallies? And where did it come from? And what, what, let's just give me the spiel on this. Well, first, you know, the guy says this is going to be like little round top. So, I mean, Doug Mastriano, when he, he was given a chance for a photo op at the War College to dress like any right. um, American military uniform you wanted to. It's, a, it's sort of like a costume thing. He chose a Confederate uniform. So what side of Little Round Top are they on? Are they talking about like the, the, the Chamberlain side that fixed bayonets and charged? Yeah. Or are they talking about like, you know, my ancestors from Mississippi who are on the other side and lost? It's just so incredible that uh, this this fetishization of the Confederacy, um, you know, the, the idea of in charge the Capitol and they have Confederate flags. Like, don't they get it? We lost, you know? I mean, it's yes, extraordinary. This is about something that we saw in the 30s here in America, which is a fascist movement. And I think it's it's very interesting to ask ourselves, why did America not become fascist in the 30s? And probably it's because FDR was president, not Lindbergh. And probably leaders matter. And, you know, I think about this a lot in relationship to Mitt Romney. You know, if we had won in 12, he would have led the party in a very different direction. And yet it still would have been the same people. Think about Donald Trump as president and how these people, they're pledging allegiance to something that is not the Constitution of the United States. That is what this is about. We are pledging mm -hmm. allegiance to, to you, a strong man, Doug Mastriano, Donald Trump. It is completely antithetical to the idea that here laws rule, not men. One of the big mistakes that's easy to make is there's all these buffoonish figures over on that side. You know, the Boparts, the Marjorie, three names, whatever, Matt Gates. But this is not a buffoonish movement. All of the elements that are necessary for a successful autocracy, for a democracy to slide into autocracy, you have the financiers like Peter Thiel. You have a vast propaganda network like you know, Fox and its, its ecosystem. You have an increasing legal theory for this. So if you make it a law in Georgia that the legislature can vote to overturn the popular vote, when the legislature overturns the popular vote, it's completely legal. And that is, you know, why in 47 states they introduced legislation to try to change house voting. And they have shock troops. These are all the elements you need for successful autocracy. So, look, the, the Mastriano race, you know, what we did in the Lincoln Project, I think it was a very interesting thing. Um, and, and I can praise it particularly because I wasn't involved in it and it wasn't my idea. But Trippie Olson and uh, Jeff Timmer, you know, every organization has to target races, decide which races, you know, you're going to focus on. What right. these guys decided, and I thought it was just really brilliant, we're going to look at which races are the biggest threats to democracy. Right. And we're going to put mm -hmm. this through that filter, which I'd never seen done before. It is such a smart way to look at this. And their number one race as the biggest threat was the Mastriano, the, the Pennsylvania governor's race. Because right. Mastriano is someone who was an insurrectionist, paid money to send fellow insurrectionists, who lied about it, who's been interviewed by the FBI, and who in Pennsylvania, the governor appoints the secretary of state. 
Right. And he has basically said, I'm going to appoint somebody who is going to make sure the person I want to win wins. Right. So what more kind of ground zero and the symbolism of Pennsylvania, plus it's a big, it's a big ass electoral college state that is, you know, always been important. So it is a critical race. So Rick, just to pick up where Stuart's going from, like on that matrix, uh, understanding that Pennsylvania is, is, you know, obviously people have identified as ground zero for all the reasons Rick just said in terms of the fight for democracy in 2022 and 2024. What's in the matrix, but just below that, I mean, I know where you guys have done ads, right? So what's the, what's the number two most important state in terms of, of maintaining democracy? Uh, Honestly, I think Jocelyn Benson's race in Michigan is right Um, up there. And you guys have done Carrie Lake in Arizona is right up there. Right. So you I got mean, those, Michigan. Yeah. Those Michigan, Arizona, those are, I like, and, and do, is Ohio in that matrix or not? Not really. Honestly, at this point for me, that's the place where Mitch and his team are really making a stand now. Yeah. And Ohio is a very red state. You know, look, Vance's negatives are what they are and it doesn't right. seem to be knocking him out of the box. Right. Well, you seem to, you guys have done a little advertising in that race, obviously trying to a tag, little bit, a little to, bit. to hang the, hang the Donald Trump thing around yep. JD's neck. But before I play the Kerry Lake ad, I want to play, which you guys did, which I thought was really smart from the Arizona race. Cause obviously that's a place where the entire slate of Republicans, you know, they are the secretary of state, the attorney general, the governor, everybody's an election denier. Like it's the Trump slate. Yep. He endorsed them all. They all won. And everybody, all the Democrats down there are pleased because they think that those will be easy, easiest people to beat. And if they don't, Arizona is going to become like fascism central yeah. um, very quickly. But do you have a, an analysis of, I mean, literally just a factual thing. Where did the salute thing, the one fingered salute, where does that come from? How did it get into Trump's world? Did it go from Mastriano to Trump? Because we're now seeing it every time they put a Trump rally on TV, we see it. And he's obviously doing a lot more QAnon stuff. He's putting it on his Twitter feed yeah. last week. He's sending out a lot of QAnon shit. So I didn't know if there was a connection between. I'm literally ignorant about it. I'm, but I see it and yeah, it freaks uh, me out. I don't know what the origin story of the gesture is, but like a lot of things, I can tell you what'll happen next if it hasn't already. All the gentry conservative media will say, "Why are you trying to make these people seem like they're Hitler fans? Why, what do you mean?" They'll turn it into this oppositional defiant disorder tentpole for another another thing that they're doing to own the libs. Oh, they're just owning the libs. Shut up! It's not fascism. They're just owning the libs. It doesn't have any callbacks to Hitler. They're just owning the libs. See how upset the libs are? Because that's really all they believe in now is lib owning. It is. It's amazing how fast it's spreading, though, and how often you're now seeing it with Trump. I, I said I wanted to. I wanted to play Carrie Lake. This clear, this ad you guys did. Mm. A lot of Lincoln Project ads have a lot of edge to them. They're sassy, especially when you go when you're just trolling Trump, which is yeah. all about kind of humor and, and getting cable uh, reverberation. But but this was an ad you guys did uh, back in August. It's a real ad. Yeah, uh, a real ad on on Carrie Lake that talks about Carrie Lake, who's the uh, the Republican uh, nominee for governor in Arizona. And this is an ad that basically just does straight up, but very what what I think would be very effective negative advertising on her. Let's play that. Carrie Lake uh, makes a statement, and the Lincoln Project responds. We need to send a very big message to the federal government that we're not going to take this anymore. We need to fire the federal government. Interesting idea. Maybe it's a good idea. Of course, 42% of Arizona's budget comes from the federal government, so that would require a 72% increase in state taxes to fill the gap. You got that kind of money? No more Social Security checks. No more Medicare. Luke Air Force Base? Gone. In fact, say goodbye to most of the Air Force, Army, Marine bases all over the state. Arizona students would need to figure something else out because federal student aid would have to go. And sadly, all the national parks, including the Grand Canyon, 
well, they'd have to close. And we'd also lose all of our air traffic controllers, which sounds fun. But hey, drug traffickers would be happy. There wouldn't be a DEA in the state anymore. We need to fire the federal government. But my favorite part of that is we need to, we'd have to lose all of our air traffic controllers, which, which sounds fun. Um, <laughs> pause there is really, really, really brilliant. That's it. That's like a very conventional ad. I mean, that's just, I mean, it, nicely done. She's saying something fucking idiotic here. And we're going to try well, to drive I mean, home to actual Arizonans what it would mean if this woman became governor. Forget about threats to democracy. She's also a moron. All credit to Stu for writing that ad because it was, it was exactly the kind of tone that you needed to both incredulous and also playing back to what we call the Bannon line, that three to 8% of Republican voters who are just like, you know, I don't want to vote for the socialist, but oh my God, I can't vote for this fucking idiot. And she looks like a, a fucking idiot. That's an ad that makes her look, look like what she is. And people are often surprised when they get, when they drill down into the States and see things like that, because a lot of the stuff that we call it the iceberg, they see the viral stuff that's on cable and on Twitter and social media, but the stuff we're doing out in the States, they don't always pick up on it. Right. We don't, and we yeah. don't, frankly, always push it. And that's the kind of ad that you know that's not going to get uh, not going to get you on Ari Melber's show, Stuart. But that's the kind of ad that you know you that if you're running gubernatorial campaigns or Senate campaigns, like for your life as you did on the Republican side, that's the kind of ad you do. That's your bread and butter an ad like that, you know. But from the other direction, you it, know. You know um, an ad like that, I think, has a lot more impact when you're running it against a gubernatorial candidate. Yeah, because, sure. you know, so, yeah. otherwise you're going to be one of a hundred and someone's going to say, yeah, you know, you could be Ron Paul and introduce some crazy shit, but somebody will vote against you. Where governors right. actually have a lot of power. And I think people have a closer connection to a governor where it makes sense. They're there in the state all the time. They don't go off to Washington. And people actually want governors to govern. Funny how they picked that name. Weird. Um, Weird. Yeah, yeah, they're not, you know, senators are up there in togas. Governors are out there, you know, if you have a hurricane like they're going to have in Florida or if you have, you know, a natural disaster, um, you still want to have that connection with him. I think that part of this whole process that we're trying to do is make people take unserious people seriously so that mm -hmm. you think about the ramifications of this. So Donald Trump was a fundamentally unserious human being and he got a lot of pass. And, you know, he turned out to be deadly serious. When, when, you know, protest candidates, and a lot of this is about protest candidates. You know, this is why you vote for Jesse Ventura. This is why, you know, what, but- Ross protest, Perot. Uh, yeah. Ross Perot. Protest candidates, there is a pattern. Ross Perot was a perfect example that they tend to peak when people begin to take them seriously and think they might win. Because then it no longer is a protest vote, it becomes a real mm -hmm. vote. And it's the kind of thing you see in French elections where people in the first uh, election, they'll vote for a protest candidate. But then when it really gets serious, you know, they'll end up voting for Macron, even though they're not Macron, because they don't want this like, you know, pro-Putin Le Pen. That is a lot of what we, we try to do. Like, what, this, what does this mean? How is this going to affect your lives? How is it going to affect the country? Look at the abortion bills, right? I mean, you knew Greg Abbott. I knew Greg Abbott. If I had told you, sure. you know, back in the day we were hanging out in Austin, that Greg Abbott was going to be the guy that would put a bounty on women, who would have said, like, you're crazy, Greg. Greg not going to yeah. do that. I mean, you know, yeah. the book banning that goes on. You, you have DeSantis attacking the happiness company. So this stuff, uh, it's when the unimaginable becomes inevitable. That is really where the line is. Okay, we're going to take one more quick break, the last quick break here in this podcast, and then we'll be back for the final part of our gripping 
entertaining, fascinating, and engrossing discussion with Stuart Stevens and Rick Wilson of The Lincoln Project on Helen Highwater. Welcome back to Hell on High Water. Stuart, you mentioned the abortion thing. I want to I I get to that in one specific problem. I could play Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham doubled down last week again about, yeah. you know, he basically gave it a chance to back away from his position. He's like, oh, no, no, no. We're a national party. We reject Chinese abortion policy. You're like, man, I, you know, we were out doing the, this, the circus episode that was our first of this new run. It was all, it's all about abortion. And we're running around the, 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 you know, talking to Pat McCrory and other people. They're like, man, this Lindsey Graham thing is a fucking, is a problem, you know, because you got that, that doofus candidate down there in North Carolina, um, candidate, Mr. Bud, Bud. who's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh yes, I'm gonna. I'm definitely with Lindsey Graham. And McCrory's like saying to us, he's like, uh, it's the thing that's gonna cost him this election by uh, deciding to go with the federal abortion ban. But here's a guy. At least he went with the federal abortion ban. Here's my the, the sound I want to play. Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker is is the gift that keeps on giving in this race oh, in terms of uh, sound. But here's Herschel Walker last week on Newsmax being asked what he would do about the Lindsey Graham abortion bill. I really want to play it. We'll hear the question and the answer. Here it is. Herschel Walker on abortion. If you were elected, would you support a bill like Lindsey Graham's, which seeks to federalize uh, an abortion law, outlawing abortions at 15 weeks? Well, first of all, I think it should be in the states. I think it should be in the people's hands. That's where it should be at. The people should decide that. You know, I'm a Christian. I'm for life. I've always been for life, and, uh, and I'm not going to apologize for it. And, you know, and I think it should be in the states. But if I had to vote right now, it will be yes. But, uh, yeah, I think it belongs in the states. I think if I'm if I'm not confused about this, I think what he said there was it should definitely be with the states, but I would definitely vote for Lindsey Graham's bill, which um, you know, as far as I, I saw, federal abortion ban, right? So, Herschel Walker, Rick, look. Uh, first off, as you know, John, I am not a guy who hesitates to pull a lot of punches on people in politics, but this is a guy who is being manipulated. He's got profound chronic brain damage from CTE. And he is, he is not all there. I feel terrible every time I hear the guy open his mouth. That said, this kind of stuff is, you know, obviously he had those answers beaten into him by his staff before, they, before he went out there. And he still kind of maybe told the truth, but maybe fumbled it. But let's get down to the, the realities of Georgia. It is a red state-ish, but 65% of the votes are going to come out of the donut of 27 counties around Atlanta. And that is not as pro-life as, as Herschel may think. I think it's a disaster politically for the Republicans so far this year. You know, I had an interesting conversation with a you know, still Trump-ish Republican who's not a stupid person, but said, you know, I, I am having trouble like reconciling limited government with what they want to do on abortion. Funny about that. Well, I got to say for, for those of us who, who for a long time, independent of party have thought that, you know, that a woman's ability to control her own body with some limits is, is the right policy, basically the Roe v. Wade consensus, the right policy yep. for America. We've always thought it was crazy the Republicans, the limited government party walked around and were like, except for when it comes to this. the gay stuff and the abortion <laughs> right. stuff. Other than that, we want freedom from government. I mean, we've always thought that. That's not new. But this is like, I mean, I agree with you about Walker, right? Either brain damaged or illiterate or both. But he's he said a lot of crazy, a lot of like almost unparsable, like maybe even sympathy inspiring things in this campaign. And, you know, in that case, 26 seconds, he says it should be up to the states. It should be in the people's hands and it should yeah. be he vote yes on Lindsey Graham's bill. But Stuart, is he you know, you both you guys both know the South. It's amazing to me that Walker 
is still competitive in that race, well, could look. still win that race. And 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 look, I mean, look, Brian Kemp is beating Stacey Abrams and, and all I can think of by a lot. Like no one even thinks Stacey Abrams no. is competitive anymore in the governor's race. And and you know, it, it makes me think, God, just imagine what would happen if it wasn't for Donald Trump and Herschel Walker, a Brian Kemp lookalike, a Brian Kemp body double would be beating Warnock. Well, listen, it, what, if it was Sonny Purdue, right? This not the case. If this was right? Sonny Purdue, it would not be a race. What Walker said was completely un... Uh, you can't parse it. It's two contradictory things. But let me ask you this. How different is that than Mitch McConnell going out and saying why he should have voted for Donald Trump? All the reasons Donald Trump should have been convicted, but he didn't vote to convict him. I mean, it, it is that inconsistency. Now, now you know, McConnell isn't, doesn't have the issues that, that Walker has, but it's the same thing. It, it is saying something right. that is completely inconsistent with what you do. And this is, what, this is what happens when there's no coherent policy of governing in a party. There is no theory of governance. It is, it, it is all about... As, as Rick says, owning the libs, which is really just another word for the Republican Party exists to elect Republicans. That's it. So is it right. Walker? Fine, he's a Republican. Does anybody in the United States Senate, other than getting an autograph, if you're sitting there in what is supposed to be, you know, the greatest deliberative body, which is increasingly becoming like a punchline, you know, look, I think I want to go ask Herschel what he thinks here. Right. Yeah. You know, there have been serious people <laughs> from Georgia who have been who have been yeah. uh, there? Sam, I mean, he makes Sam, Trump, Sam he makes Trump Thurman look like you know Sophocles, um, and yeah. it, it it just shows that they care nothing about governing. So if we'll right. go with Walker, right. you know, okay, great. And if Walker wins, we'll we'll rally around him. Same with J.D. Vance, who is a guy right. who has been completely contradictory on every issue, who has clearly some sort of deep antipathy toward women who has said that women in violent marriages should stay in those violent marriages. And that's fine because, you know, he's got an R behind his name. And that is, it's just, it is a consistent pattern. You see it highlighted with somebody like Walker, but... I mean, but, I, but but, you know, say, to, one of the things I want to say, you know, I, I think that what happened on January 5th, 2021 was one of the greatest political achievements in a pure political sense that I, I in our lifetime. I mean, it was like winning the world, to win both those races was like winning the right. World Series and, and pitching perfect for, for games. People, for, for people, for anybody who forgets out there in the world, January 5th, the day before January 6th, 2021, the Democrats won both of those special elections in Georgia and took both Georgia Senate seats in the same day. Um, and, and that was the, you know, what gave and we, we were we were we were deep in that race and we had some content there that really moved numbers. We didn't know it would work, but the fact that it right. did, I mean, we that, that was weirdly that day was almost as gratifying as beating Trump. But isn't that story, that story is basically, I think, I think Carl Rove is, is, has made this point both publicly and privately as, as strongly as anybody. That's just, that story, Stuart, is just the story of Donald Trump because the reality yeah. is that it wasn't black turnout that won those races. You know, black turnout was basically the same in 2020 as it was in 2018. It, the reality was it was white suburban Atlantans, Republicans who wanted to vote for Republican were like, I, they were, Trump was so toxic 
that they were like, I'm, I'm going to vote for the Democrat rather than vote for Trump or the Trump anointed candidates. Yep. And what's happening in, in the in the race right now with Brian Kemp is that they're all coming home to Brian Kemp because they want to vote for just a normal what they think of as a normal Look, Republican. It, it, and the question, the question, in the Walker race is whether what happens with those people, because that's. You know, that's the ballgame. Right yeah. There. And look, I'm not exactly a fan and he's not exactly a fan in return. But if Mitch McConnell had had his way this year with his primary picks, if he had Jane Timken right. in Ohio, if he had David McCormick yep. in Pennsylvania, go down yep. the list. If he'd gotten his way in these races yep. in North Carolina, in Georgia, they wouldn't be close. Let's be honest. Right. They wouldn't be close. You give normal Republicans in Ohio a normal Republican to vote for, they'll do it in spades. I believe in my heart, there aren't that many really normal Republicans anymore. I mean, it's less, um, yeah. Because, you know, even, right. even, but, but even Glenn Youngkin is out kissing Carrie Lake's ass this week. Sure. See that, that, that you know, let's just pause right because right there is the essence of what has happened to the Republican Party. So everybody said, you know, I had all these Republican friends saying, look, Glenn Youngkin, you know, he's kind of like Mitt Romney, he came out of financiers. He's a good guy. He's not going to be one of these crazies. So here's a guy who ran on a racist platform, even though I don't think he believed it for a second. His son goes to Georgetown Prep where they teach, you know, Margaret Walker courses. Mm -hmm. But so what happens? He's also ambitious to advance in the Republican Party. You have to now endorse and campaign for Terry Lake. Why did the Republican Party say, and we thought they believed character counts? Because ultimately this is all about the character of the party. Once you make this deal, and what people forget is that, you know, in Faust, Mesistopheles not only takes your soul, but he doesn't deliver. So once you accept Trump and you make (laughs) these deals, how does that end? Tactically, you know, say, okay, we're going to win Virginia, but then, you know, you end up with a Herschel Walker, you end up with these crazy people. It's just a party that has completely collapsed. No one can articulate a coherent theory of conservative government in America now with any credibility. Uh, yeah, right. I, look, I agree with that. We could talk about this. I mean, we really literally could talk about this all night long. I want to play one last thing, though. The, the, the crazy Tudor Dixon thing you know, is not what I'm going to play. <laughs> but, you know, again, the, the abortion thing. There's Tudor Dixon, you know, last week trashing Gretchen Whitmer, comparing her policies on abortion, which are basically like she wants Roe v. Wade reinstated to the people who tried to kidnap and kill her. This is like what the Republican Party has become now. Uh, in Michigan, mm-hmm. and, and Rick, to your point about abortion, like if what's been the the boon to all of those to Gretchen Whitmer, Jocelyn Benson, uh, Dana Nessel, you know, the, the, nothing better for them than than fighting now on the side of a constitutional amendment to reenshrine Roe v. Wade in the in the Michigan Constitution. That they're all now up, mm-hmm. they're all up double digits now in races that we thought six months ago were going to be razor thin. We we now thought we were going to have to be in Michigan. Yes, right. We thought we were going to have to really go into Michigan right. for Whitmer, but you know, God bless. Not anymore. You got Tudor Dixon out there still still defending the position that if a 12-year-old girl gets raped by Uncle Charlie, that she should be forced to carry that baby to term. She's like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that kid could turn out to be a pretty nice person. So they gotta, they're got going to have to carry that you know, baby. My, my, my hope bat, about Tudor Dixon shit. is that... Yeah. My hope about Tudor Dixon is that she hasn't made it impossible for other people in vampire porn to get into politics. <laughs> that she's really, you know... That, 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 that she, hasn't, she hasn't driven the brand down. 
Because I'm sure there's a lot of great people out there who were in vampire porn who could really serve the country well. Well, I think, Stuart, you're underselling yourself. Stuart's like one of the great scholars of vampire porn that I know. And he's probably he's like, he's a guy, I got a whole list of people here I'd like to see in public office. Um, here's here's my last question, though, because you got to talk about DeSantis because it's, it's your guy. Sure. Rick, he's like in your backyard. And... He's the other, and Stuart was talking about him before. He's a smart guy, at least a well-educated guy. You know, the notion of him as the smart Trump is the thing that, that keeps a lot of Democrats awake at night is that somehow Trump gets hit by a bus or, or something happens and then DeSantis runs the table and you've got basically an authoritarian uh, autocrat mm-hmm. fascist who's got like 50 IQ points on Trump. That's dangerous. Like, you know, so, so here's what happened. With yeah. The, so DeSantis, been all over this saying this. Yeah. So DeSantis, you know, we know what's been happening over the last couple of weeks. There's crazy scheme or maybe nefarious scheme, whatever, a scheme, maybe a legal scheme. Let's, let's stick with that where money was taken from the state of Florida, Floridian taxpayers. And in the face of what DeSantis is, is a migrant crisis uh, in Florida that last week he said was just onesies and twosies, but, you know, kind of undercut the, the crisis notion of it. He took a bunch yeah. of money, uh, paid to have a bunch of migrants flown from Texas, I would say kidnapped and then flown from Texas up to Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. There's a criminal investigation in Texas. He's under investigation in Florida. There's all kinds of things, but he's still... You know, talk about our polarized world. Every Republican I know thinks it's brilliant and thinks that he's helped to foreground the immigration issue. Rick, do a political analysis. Not like Ron, you can talk, you, if you want to trash us to DeSantis, that's fine. But I want to know listen, what, listen, I want to know. I, 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 listen. Let, let me ask the question though. Let me, just, let me, let me put the point, point on the question. Here's the okay. question. Because I really want to know the answer to this question. There's a kind of perception that yes, it's, it's bad what he's doing. He's basically doing political human trafficking. It's bad. But that by foregrounding the by by foregrounding the issue of immigration, that he's helping the party in some fucking crazy way. Because now, out there in the chatter, in on Google searches and everything else, immigration's rising is an issue, and that helps Republicans. He may be taking a lot of hits from the liberal media, goes the view of some Republicans, but he's doing the Lord's work for the party by forcing into the public conversation an issue that helps Republicans in general. So that's the political analysis I want in addition to whatever personal analysis you want to do on DeSantis as a scumbag. That, that's what I call the gentry analysis. That's where the, the National Review guys are trying to find a moral exit ramp for something they know is, is a both ineffective and immoral thing. But the Republican Party has replaced governance with spectacle. They have replaced this uh, any sort of ideas with performative cruelty. Now, I take a different approach to this. DeSantis has no intention of doing anything about immigration. DeSantis is setting up for the 2024 election because he identified the critical valence of why Trump beat all the other Republicans in the field. And that valence was immigration. He was the one saying Mexican rapists. DeSantis has identified that. He knows it's a way to beat Trump. It's a way to get the Republican hard base of Trump world to come to him whether Trump's in the race or not. So he's going to keep doing this. He's going to keep ramping this up. This is a 2024 play. Anybody who thinks DeSantis is not already running his 2024 presidential race is out of their mind. This last piece of sound I'm going to play is on this specific thing. A Lincoln Project ad called SAD. This is, I think, I think of this as one of your specialties. This is back from 2021, but it goes directly to sure, this sure. issue. A trolling Donald Trump ad, just to get kind of inside his head. This was back when DeSantis was on the rise before supposedly the DeSantis train got derailed mm-hmm. by all of Trump's legal problems. Let's just play that so we can hear it. Lincoln Project did its glory. Hey, Donald. No, we didn't forget about you. Though a lot of people are trying to. People who owe you. People you made. People like Ron DeSantis. Without you, he'd be nothing. A loser. But now, 
Now he's the next big thing. He's making it his Republican Party. Everyone says he's better than you. Bigger than you. Smarter than you. Thinner than you. Don't take our word for it. Just watch Fox. He's on all the time. All the time. You, not so much. Rupert Murdoch and Fox picked DeSantis over you for 2024. Sad. Ron is running for president, and with Fox's help, he'll beat you. DeSantis doesn't need you. He even came to New Jersey, just down the road from Bedminster, and didn't pay his respects. And there's nothing you can do about it. You guys like like love taunting Trump. I like it when you guys put out a thing that says where the ad buys are, and it's like we're doing this in Bedminster on the Gulf in West, Trail in West, in West Palm Beach, and we have there's always say something. It'll say something like it's geo. What's the word? What's the phrase you guys use? I love geofenced. Geofenced around like I'm like what the I don't even know what the fuck that is. Geofenced around <laughs> something that's made up thing. We're basically inside Trump's head. Stewart, my question to you on the basis of that ad and many others of the of the kind. Rick just told me that what DeSantis is doing is a 2024 play. play. Yes. You guys just told me that your view is that Trump will run in 2024 and will it has a clear path to the nomination, not in spite of, but because of his likely indictment. Mm-hmm. Is Ron DeSantis, who we both just said was smart, a smart version of Trump, does Ron DeSantis not see that? And if he doesn't does see that, why is he doing what he's doing right now that looks so much like he is trying to run for president? I'll make a prediction. I think Trump is going to change his residency in New Jersey and it's going to be a Trump-DeSantis ticket. <laughs> and that will be a very powerful ticket. He has to change his residency because he can't have two people in the same state, president and vice president. Think about it. That's, that's a, a serious. That's, that's a serious, serious prediction. That's not a tongue in cheek prediction. prediction. That's a real prediction. No, no, it's, no I'm serious. Sorry. Because DeSantis, if he if he runs and they lose that, then the vice president and the losing ticket is often you know in position to be the the, the nominee. No one's going to blame DeSantis because Trump lost. And if Trump wins, he's only going to serve one term. So then DeSantis will immediately be the front runner for the uh, 2028 election. And he's a young man. Yeah, and you've got Florida. It makes a ton of sense. And it would be a very, very powerful party. And look, Trump has always been about co-opting people. Mm. You know, do me a favor, do this, you know. And he would see this as a perfect way to deal with DeSantis because DeSantis literally would be under him. And well, hopefully, um, not, hopefully not literally. I wouldn't want to see DeSantis <laughs> literally under Trump. That's, but, not a, um, that's not a picture DeSant- I want to think of. And DeSantis would do it because, you know, I, I, DeSantis is a guy who put his toddler in a commercial building a wall. Yeah. The person that'll do that, you know, you shouldn't be surprised if he's in the rendition business. It's not a particularly new or interesting or novel flaw, but it's, it's someone who has a sort of deadly ambition that transcends any sort of character. So I, I'm dead serious when I think. I think that's how this will play out. Mm-hmm. My last question, therefore, I take that as a, and this is a very, will be a very brief question. I'll let you guys go. You guys have been fantastic. I could basically have you guys on the podcast every week. You're both so delightful, except someone would eventually point out that we're all like old white men. Um, Rick, <laughs> if, if Trump's on the top and Santa's on the bottom, is that how it should be? Is, do you think Trump's a top or a bottom? I think Ron DeSantis is a power bottom. Yeah, power. <laughs> Ooh, power bottom. There's a thing I don't want to hear about. Somebody point. Somebody was like Tim Miller, I think, or somebody was saying that he thought that you know the Trump Pence thing was basically a Dom sub relationship, and then someone pointed out to me that actually in Dom sub relationships the sub has all the power. 
So it didn't make any sense, that argument. And I was like, you know too much about Dobbs and Subs person who has said this to me. Stuart's over there. He's like, I have a whole theory about this, which we'd have need a whole new podcast to discuss that has to do with vampire porn and Dom Sub relations. Uh, Stuart's like, he's like, that's five a whole. I think that's a great podcast, like a, a whole separate podcast theme. I mean, Stuart has a, Stuart has a screenplay written about this topic already and uh, <laughs> in, in his next novel, right? There, there are many YouTube channels as we speak that are already dedicated to this. So. To, to, bo- to both of them. <laughs> um, you guys are great. It's, it's a delight to see you both. Well, thank you, John. Hopefully, we'll all, um, we'll all survive what's about to befall America over the course of these Do what we can. All right, weeks. brother. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Okay, guys. That. Thanks for having us. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recap. Thanks again to Lincoln Project co-founder Rick Wilson and senior advisor Stuart Stevens. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recap, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney is our producer and engineer. Zoya Soroy is our researcher and the one and only the truth the light the man the myth the legend marshall isaac is our executive producer 